Hello and welcome to Group Chat, the Ringer's weekly NBA group discussion, where right now we have no swagger to us. I guess that's all the time for for this crew. Uh, Joining me today from Dallas, Jonathan Sharks. First off, with three Dallas people on this pod, that's a ridiculous statement. I can't believe you'd even say that. Well, I was getting to it. I was going to say, also from Dallas, Rob Mahoney. Hey guys, happy new year to all of you. And also from Dallas. Yay, yay. <laughs> from Tim Cato, Tim Cato from The Athletic. What's up, Tim? Hey, guys. Um, am I the only one physically? Well, Charks is physically in Dallas. Do you live Rob in Dallas technically? Well. Are you suburbs? I'm living in Highland Park, baby. I'm out here. Yeah, not see, not Dallas. I am the that only one physically. That is definitely phys- wow. Dallas. Are you no, kidding me? No, no, that's rich Dallas. We, We're uh, drawing lines already. We still support the common oh. man in, in the city of Dallas. Uh, the actual limits. <laughs> Says Tim from his 16th floor high rise. And- <laughs> <laughs> All right, before we get into the geopolitics of of Dallas in the the Fort Worth area, uh, we're going to talk about the Mavs today. And then in the back half of the podcast, we're going to talk about some teams uh, who were expected to be contenders and whether or not we believe in them. Uh, All of that and more just after this. It's the Ringer NBA show presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA final starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find out what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like three-minute markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available. And listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 years and older, 18 and older in D.C., and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by Arby's. Arby's better not catch you slacking on snacking with their new two-for-five-dollar chicken wraps. And your choice of ranch, barbecue, honey, mustard, and a bonus flavor called Incredible Value. You can't taste it, but boy, is it sweet. Arby's two for five dollar chicken wraps are here for a limited time at participating locations. Visit an Arby's near you or order ahead on the Arby's app. All right, we're back. So three people from Dallas. Is this enough for a hoot nanny? <laughs> Get out. Uh, okay. Uh, wait. Get out. Wait, can I keep going? Like, how many of you guys own a horse? Several? I rode a horse once this summer for the first time, actually. <laughs> really? It was really wow. hard. I was freaking out, honestly. Wow. Well, you, you have your city-issued horse the moment you move here. <laughs> or, or, or are born. Obviously, <laughs> children get ponies. Yeah, yeah. But mm. if you move here at a later point in life, it's a fully grown horse. Otherwise, how are you going to get around? This is a great point. Sharks, I want to know more about your horse riding this summer. Was this just like a day with the kid or (laughs) what was this? No, it was my wife's idea for like a day. And I was like, sure, I'd be cool to ride a horse. But it was actually really scary. Like we were like riding on like hills and stuff. And I was convinced I was going to fall off and like die, basically. Wow. I'm just hearing as you're telling this story, Kid Rocks, I want to be a cowboy baby just playing in the background. Maybe we could splice that in. during. Well, now you're really dating yourself referencing that song. Let's be honest. We don't have Kid Rock money. We can't just be getting those rights just (laughs) off the bat like that. That's true. 
Um, all right, let's let's get into this. Uh, I'm I'm calling you guys the Texas Triangle, by the way. Just if not, uh, just think about that as we're going through this. That in my head, every question is prefaced with, "Hey, the Texas Triangle. What do you think about this?" Um, but the Mavs becoming quickly one of the more interesting teams of this early going. Uh, I think last night, had they not just beat the Rockets, we would be hitting the panic button right now. And this for the listener at home, I am hitting a panic button for. Our, our panels here. Um, Tim, let's start here. Uh, how do you feel about the Dallas Mavericks now three and four after last night's win? I mean, it's it's always so fun and easy to be reactionary. And um, sometimes it's, it's uh, I, I feel like doing it just, just anyway, because, uh, you know, you got to get those takes off. But I mean, I wrote about the, I wrote before the season that I expected a, a sluggish, slower start. Um, you know, Chris Desperzingis remains out, although he seems like he's going to be back sooner, sooner than later. Um, Doncic looked, um, still looks a little heavy, you know, uh, it was even kind of explained that, you know, he had, he had his whole plans to ramp back up. Um, but he had a, he had it planned for a January start. So when the season came back in December, uh, yeah, he wasn't right. Pretty much everybody was, was, you know, even willing to admit that, it, you know, it was a, uh, it was a, uh, hardly a secret because you could watch him and, and see how he looked and all that. But, you know, it was something even the Mavericks were admitting, uh, to, to an extent and, uh, something Carlisle mentioned, uh, last night. So I, I figured it would be a, a slower start. And, uh, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that some issues haven't popped up that, that are concerning that, that will persist even when Porzingis does get back even when Luca, you know, is really firing at at uh at all cylinders, um, if you'll allow the uh, the cliche. But but yeah, I, I just I don't think it's shocking. And I don't think that the the preseason expectations of this team uh as a as a you know confident playoff lock, um, you know, maybe even slightly something slightly better than that. I, I don't think that we gotta throw those you know out the window just because you know they're three and four. Even even if they were two and five, I, I would you know be a little more worried. Sure, but but not not you know full on panicking, uh, not hitting the panic button you were earlier. Um, so uh, I, I don't have one of those installed. So it's just it's not really possible for me. <laughs> Tim, I gotta ask. So this spin about Luca having a plan for January, like is that what <laughs> happened? Are, are we buying this? Like is that what was going Thank on? You sharks. Yes. I mean. I mean, I think that a 21 year old, um, I I thought, I thought the most interesting thing that's actually been said about him, the most honest thing, um, was JJ Barea on, uh, on the JJ Reddick podcast, um, just a few days ago, I think. And he was talking about how, you know, Luca isn't really working out yet. He isn't really, he doesn't really have that work ethic yet. He's 21. He enjoys himself. You know, clearly he is, uh, you know, he gets in shape. He's in you know, way better shape than the four of us, the, the Texas triangle combined. <laughs> if, if I can, if I can speak for y'all, you know, I don't, I mean, you know, maybe Sharks's calves are looking great after that mm. horse riding, my friend, let me tell you. <laughs> Wouldn't that be more of a quad thing? I don't know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Sharks, you tell us. Um, yeah, no, I, I do wonder how much of this is just like expectation because this is kind of billed as not only Lucas extension, but like, you know, the Mavs ascension into a different tier in the NBA, especially coming off of that playoff loss. So I guess the question really is, A, do we think they can hit that higher level this season uh, just in general? Like, do they have that in them this season, the way the team is constructed? And do we think that they can live up to that? Rob, where are you kind of on the whole just Dallas experience? I don't see a reason why they wouldn't. You know, it is a slow start for sure, as Tim laid out. But fundamentally, this is a pretty similar team to last year with a couple of a couple of nice changes, which I think should level them out kind of on both sides of the ball. 
I like what they've done. Rick Carlisle is historically a coach who will figure out his rotation over time. You give him the opportunity to do that. And they have a lot of good pieces. It's just a matter of who plays together, who plays when, you know, getting Luca into shape, getting Luca to make more than one three pointer for a week at a time. Like that stuff will figure itself out. I think Dallas is still really good. And and fundamentally, it comes down to do you see this as an elite offense like it was last year or do you see it as kind of a middle-of-the-road offense, which is what they've been so far? And I think middle-of-the-road might be generous given some of their performances. So if we think Dallas is still a good offense, which certainly we have every reason to think that they would be credibly, and especially once they get Chris Porzingis back, it still looks like a really good team. I think what Rob said is a good point, talking about Carlisle being a guy who figures out rotations because he started to make a lot of changes. When you talk about that in last night's game in Houston, he moved Dwight Powell and Tim Hardaway out of the starting lineup and started Willie Cauley-Stein and Maxi Kleber instead. Like, so he's starting to move guys around trying to figure out different notations. What's, what's wild is he had um, 34 different starting lineups last year. And, and I can't believe it took this long after, after a slow start, after that starting unit he was using before with Dwight Powell and Hardaway in there. Um, you know, certainly hadn't looked great in any of the first five games they had together. Um, so it's why it is a little surprising it took that long because 34 starting lineups last season in 75 games um, has to be pushing up there in terms of how many you you might see possibly in, in in one season. Well, and as far as this first game, just an unmitigated success as far as the look of that group. And, you know, Maxi was in some foul trouble in this first game. So Tim Hardaway Jr. got a little more playing time than you might have expected given that layout. But basically those two groups with Luca, Josh Richardson, Dorian Finney-Smith, Willie Cauley-Stein, and either Maxi or Hardaway was plus 27 in 13 minutes in this first game. I mean, a lot better, you know, better rebounding potential with that group. But I think the the kind of elephant in the room is the Dwight Howell piece, the Dwight Powell piece of this, Tim, which I'm curious to get your take. You know, before his injury was a guy who was just kind of pretty reliably a, a plus-minus monster for them. You know, filled out a lot of lineups nicely with his ability to roll to the rim. What do you think has changed for him? Why was that not the case kind of in the early going of this season? Well, it's, it's all the, it's all the Achilles. It's the Achilles injury injury he suffered in January and, and that he's um, not even quite 12 uh, months removed coming up on the, the, the one year anniversary. And, and yeah, he just, he just doesn't look like he has the, the same burst, the same bounce. I, I was willing to be patient. You know, I think the, the Mavericks fan base at large was freaking out about it as soon as the first preseason game ended. Uh, maybe even before that, I, I thought you know if if you know you want a you want a functional pal on this roster um, as the season goes along. If if you can you know whatever manner you need to you know if you think you can get him there this season, whatever manner you decide to choose to you know get him back up to speed. If it's just game time, if if that's all it's it's going to take, you know I, I think it's it's worth putting him in the starting lineup for for reasons like that. But but once you get five games in and the starting lineup just it still isn't working, uh, you're I think they, you know, they started one and four and then, you know, two and uh, or sorry, one and three and then two and four. Um, so so it was it was clear that they, they needed some sort of change. And Powell was the obvious one because he just doesn't look like he has the burst. He doesn't have the the vertical spacing. You know, I, I think I've seen him throw. I want to say he's completed one alley-oop. And, and, you know, he was he was one of the better, um, you know, upper echelon rim runners, you know, when healthy. But but it's just not right there right now. You know, I, I don't know if he's as, as quick getting off the floor. Uh, all the all the typical things you see from an Achilles injury, um, but it, it's just he's he's something that his number one strength was something very tied to athleticism, and that isn't to say in six months he can't get there because we've seen how Achilles often are more of an eighteen month recovery process, even if you're you're cleared to play in in twelve. 
but but yeah, I, I don't I don't think he's there right now, and I, I think that you know I, I, he's he's going to play. He's still going to play. He's going to still going to have a role off the bench. I, I expect to see him in the starting lineup, just knowing how Carlo kind of operates. But I, I think for now, um, benching him in, in whatever way and, and bringing him in as a as a bench rotation player is is just a smarter move. And you know you're you're setting him up for success more more so than than asking him to start games and guard you know uh, Marcus All or he was guarding Anthony Davis. That didn't go very well. Right, right, right. DeAndre Ayton, the first game, was, was his matchup. Um, that's, that's not fair to him. I got some numbers. Like, I'd hate to just blame Dwight Powell because he's a nice guy. But, so, in 98 minutes with Dwight Powell, Luka is minus 8. In 96 minutes without him, he's plus 21. Now, if you take the other four starters, Luka, Hardaway, Finney Smith, Richardson, in 54 minutes with Powell, they're minus 12. And 30 minutes without Powell, they're plus 22. And I know this is a small sample size, but I don't care. Like, the number... <laughs> you, Dwight is like a one-trick pony without his trick. He's just out there on the floor. So what you're saying is the extra weight Luca is carrying is actually Dwight Powell's dead weight? Wow. Would you describe the horse you rode on this summer as a one-trick pony? <laughs> <laughs> well... Okay, let me ask you this. How much of this is quietly a Willie Cauley-Stein revival? Do we think like some of this is just the trade-off of him playing above his head right now? Like, Do we think he is a legit potential center in what they look like with KP back in there? So he might be a better defender <laughs> than we think. <laughs> the perfect Willie Cauley-Stein answer. It's... Yeah. it's- I, I have been, you know, in, in talking to Mavericks people and, and, you know, looking at the numbers, his defensive numbers when he's on the floor, um, last season, small sample size, I think it was about 180 minutes, but their defensive rating was like five points better than their, their you know, season defensive rating, um, the best out of any rotational player. Uh, that's repeated this season, um, even smaller sample size, of course. He doesn't, you know, he makes, when he messes up on defense, it's very visible. Um, you know, it's, it's him not boxing out or it's him just completely getting lost, uh, you know, in, in, in space and, or, or, you know, turning his head and just not realizing that his, that his man's under the rim, you know, and, and those are, those are the ones that make Rick Carlisle, you know, that, that's why he doesn't have hair anymore. Like these are the type of players that caused him to lose it, uh, over the course of his coaching career. Um, and, and still not a player that, that he, uh, has much patience for, but, but when the numbers are good, you know, like maybe, maybe he is making more of an impact um, just because like his profile as a very, you know, one of the most athletic seven footers in the league, um, you know, it's a very JaVale McGee situation. Like they're, they're almost like, you know, if, if, if Collie Stein had picked up a ring or two in his career, they would have very similar, you know, kind of archetypes. Yeah. I mean, this is their type. Yeah. Right, just skinny athletic rim protectors who probably like will only be there for a year or two because Carlisle will just yell at them too much. <laughs> this was kind of the right game to roll him out, though, just in the sense that Christian Wood, for all of his strengths as a player, is not the guy who beats you with fundamentals. Um, and so I think Willie Cauley Stein had a chance in that matchup in a way that made sense. Like, if you're going to make this kind of shift, and I mean, Rick Carlisle shown he'll do that kind of whenever he wants, regardless. I don't know how much this would have factored into his decision in the first place, but I like the look of it in terms of if you're going to have a soft landing for Willie Cauley-Stein in the starting lineup, this this was it. Tim, I had, a, I had a question for you. So we're talking about Carlisle, and I was thinking about it, and I remember, this is back in the day a little bit, when the former Maverick franchise player Chandler Parsons came to preseason <laughs> when you're out of shape, and Rick went out of his way to mention it, 
That, and I mm. believe the next day Parsons took a shirtless photo of himself on Instagram. <laughs> on Instagram. This is like Mavs 2014 content. And I just thought about that and was like, I don't remember Rick really calling out Luca. Like, do you think Rick feels like he can do that? Like, what is their relationship like as coach and player? Did you write a think piece for Mavs Moneyball? Uh, on the, Possibly. On the, that, that, was, that was when we were in our, uh, our, our peak co-worker days. If, uh, yeah. If, if that's even the right word for it, for a SB Nation blog. But uh, <laughs> um, Luke, uh, Carlisle has absolutely adjusted to Luca. He, he is a, Luca is a young point guard um, that makes mistakes. He is also a generational basketball talent who is the future of the franchise. Um, I, I think that there's been good writing on this, both by me and, and Tim McMahon um, and probably others about how, you know, probably 30 to 40 games into uh, Luca's rookie season, Carlisle really made a shift. And, you know, we, we saw that rookie season. Uh, they traded away all four other starters, uh, Dennis Smith, Wes Matthews, Harrison Barnes, uh, DeAndre Jordan. And, and they, they made a shift saying, okay, Luca is the future. We've, we're, we're convinced at this point. Um, but Carlisle also had to get there. You know, I think the front office was convinced before him. Uh, and and over time, you know, Carlo has has softened, I guess, in ways or just understands that he needs to treat Luca a bit differently. Um, so, yeah, last night he was he was the one defending, you know, and in, in, in telling the well, he thought January and, and instead it was December. He was the one telling, you know, giving that excuse, uh, telling that story um, to to the extent that it's true. Um, I think it makes some logical sense, but but it, the logic only applies in the sense that we're okay with Luca getting way out of shape and then getting back into it, you know, every off season. Uh, so, so clearly you can, you can quibble with that a, a bit. So, so yeah, you know, I absolutely, Carlo is someone who treats uh, Luca differently and, and has to, and frankly, you know, his job is tied to it. You know, if it comes down to one or the other, it's pretty obvious which one you pick. So, you know, of course he's adjusted. And, and I think that, you know, for now they, they have a, they have a, a plenty fine relationship. Uh, you know, I don't think there's any, any any major issues there and i think it shows in, in situations like this where you know he's not gonna he's not gonna push luca to, to post a post a shirtless selfie you know there's he's uh he's learned from the chandler parsons day they might be mo- both like white you know six eight white dudes but you know like that's that's where the similarities end well let's talk about luca here because last night seemed like probably his first standout or just like what we expected for him performance uh at 33 point triple double my th- my question is the three-point shooting. And I'm curious where you fall on this, Tim, because on the one hand, you could suggest, I think he's shooting 19% uh, from three right now, which is like a significant difference from where he started before the game last night. On the one hand, you could suggest like, well, he's a volume guy. This is just going to come with the territory. Probably won't ever be like a 40% sh- a three-point shooter. On the other hand, I do wonder like how much of it comes from the fact that he's just so loosey-goosey with everything that the Luca experience requires you to like sit through him just like trying to make these ridiculous passes because he's going to make like 50% of them or just make these incredible plays. And so I guess long term, is this a concern for him or is this just like something you live with? And, and in particular, probably to your, your earlier point, is this something that Carlisle has to live with? Yeah, there's like six different ideas that come to mind off, you know, based off this, this question, um, a couple that we talked about. One is, um, I, I think a big adjustment that Carlisle made, uh, Lucas rookie season was allowing that step back shot. 
And I remember early in the season, he had a quote about, you know, there are situations where it could be useful and, you know, we are okay with it then. And there was a quote like a month later, where it's like, yeah, we like that shot. We understand that, you know, even when sometimes it doesn't go down, you know, it's, it's a, it's a net positive for the offense. And it is, I I think it's better for Luca to shoot eight times, even if he's only going to hit two, um, than than to really restrict him and, 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 and turn defenses into thinking okay he's not a threat there he's not going to shoot from there you know some of it is is just that you know inherent gravity and and you know to how players like Marcus Smart have always had more gravity than their their percentages you know really point to or would suggest uh just because players think of them as being a dangerous shooter and and thus you know you know even subconsciously stick closer to him um so I I definitely think that it, it is something he needs to uh to to keep doing to keep shooting um, back, back to the part, you know, about Brea saying he hasn't really focused in yet. I, I do wonder if, if that's what it's going to take for him to, you know, ever kind of move past the, you know, this low thirties percent, because he's going to, he's going to work back up to the low thirties. Like, I'm not worried about that. Maybe, you know, I, I think the worst case scenario is like a 29%. Um, it, and, and so he, he, I think over time, like, I think it probably will take more of a conscious, you know, fundamental mentality shift for him. Um, and who knows when that will come or or if or what exactly it's going to look like. Uh, so, so yeah, I, I think that, you know, you, you even saw it in the game last night against against the Rockets, where in the opening, uh, you know, probably six minutes, he made a point to take three good threes. You know, not the step backs, but where he's going around a screen, his defender cuts under, and he just steps into the three. Um, he did that once. He also had a face-up shot, you know, where the, the defender was, was a little ways off him. And he's just like, I, I'm just going to shoot this. I'm just going to rise up. Uh, I think he went one of three, but but like I, I saw those shots and I could tell that looks like a conscious effort from him. Um, and then late in the game, he's shooting step backs again, you know, in 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 clutch time, and and it's just like, all right, where's that focus you had just a second? Like you know, like an hour ago, it, it seemed like you were focused and you're zoned in again, and and now now he's back to you know just just tossing up a thirty footer because uh, he's he starts feeling himself again. So you just got to live with that. My favorite part of that answer is basically what Tim just said was Rick adjusted by letting Luca do whatever he wants. <laughs> it's a good coaching adjustment when you have Luca Doncic on your team. Do whatever you want. It's just so wild though because like my impulse is to just like just berate him for taking some of these shots but then you almost have to stop yourself. So I wonder if this is like the Carlisle experience because you know like this is just part of it and you, and you know that there are so many ancillary benefits to doing this. I think my question, though, is long-term. Here's the thing. Do we notice it more because it's just like the one glaring flaw in what is an otherwise just like sterling package? Like you could look at his statistical line and just see that just like really obvious flaw there. And you wonder like, hey, this seems like it could get better and he would just be a so much better player. But like, I almost wonder if it's intrinsic to like what he's doing and, and like what that means for the rest of the team and then what, what it means for like their ceiling overall. He was he was thirty one percent on threes last season. If he had shot thirty five, that's one more made three a week. Just about it's it's ticking up from like two point nine makes to like three point two makes. So I think to some extent, yes, there is a you know we set benchmarks based off percentages. Like if a player is a forty percent shooter, they're a good shooter. You know, obviously, and he has enough volume that it does matter more. Um, but yeah, I, I'm not. I I don't think that he's not going to win an MVP because uh, until he shoots 40%, if, if, you know, that's kind of what mm-hmm. the question is. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, ju- I just love hearing about this cranky voice in the back of Justin's head <laughs> telling him to berate Luka Doncic for not being good enough. That's that's what I want to really dig into here. It's not in the back of my head. It's at the for- in front of my head now. <laughs> okay, so the number I wa- I've been watching with Luka is, so this year, he's taken seven catch-and-shoot shots versus 51 off-the-jumper, off-the-dribble shots. And that's pretty much held constant his first three years in Dallas is he never really gets shots from other people because he's just holding the ball all the time. And I kind of wonder, it's like a twofold thing. Like one, at some point, does he have to adjust his game a little bit to give other guys more offensive freedom? And two, if he let other guys set him up, would that increase his percentages? Because traditionally, right, the catch and shoot shots come a little easier to make than some of these step back 30 footers that he loves. He doesn't actually shoot better on catch and shoot jumpers. It's very funny. Um, yeah. And I think it does, it does go directly to the, you know, mindset consistency. Um, but he's like a, I, I think, I think his rookie season, he was a better pull up shooter than a catch and shoot shooter um, on threes. And it's, it's been about even, um, you know, in his career ever since. Um, I wish, I wish podcasts could like, one episode, like just 10 seconds of, of video. There was a moment in last, and I know we're having a bigger picture than, than the game against the Rockets, but there was a moment where he was wide open in the corner. Somebody running at him easily could have taken the shot. He pump faked, stepped out of it. And it's, <laughs> it's like he had an open corner three. This is this mm-hmm. probably the first, he hasn't taken a shot in the corner all season. And it's just, it's, it's, Yes, it is kind of infuriating. Like, like I, I can, I can hear the the voice at the top of your, at the front of your head, barrier. Like, I, I know, I know you're upset right now. Um, yes, I am. But and and I, I don't, I don't quite know how to explain it. But I, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's something. I, I, I do think you, you said it best. It's something we dwell on because there isn't much else you can right now. Yeah, it just also seems like. It's there for him if he just takes it to your point. And it's like, we all know like those are the easiest shots. That's where like the bump in the percentages come from. Like just take it. But the fact that he's like actively getting out of that situation and bailing is kind of the point. And I think it actually like speaks to a bigger picture conversation about the Mavs. It's just so Giannis is off the board for next season. They have all this cap space. Like what is the ideal third guy there if we're assuming that KP is going to be there long-term and, and be that second guy? Like, what do they need? And then who is that? And does that player exist? I think that right now is my big existential question about this franchise. Because, like, the answer to it could, if we're being honest, like, just shape the NBA for the next couple of years. Does that player exist is a question I also have. I, I don't know if... It's probably Kawhi, I guess. Kawhi, maybe yeah, even, that's, like, best case. Yeah. I mean, someone like Otto Porter, a, a, a better than people think two-way player. Um, I, there aren't a lot of great free agency names that are just perfect fits. Um, I, I know that a player like Kimba Walker, who they tried to sign to two summers ago or last summer, time, time isn't real. Uh, <laughs> like that would not have been the right fit at, for all the reasons we're talking about that Luca right now is, has, knows how he wants to play and is very comfortable in that way. And I think you need a more gradual process to push him to do things like give the ball up to other players and, you know, allow them to pass him the ball when he's open in the corner and actually shoot that three instead of just dribble out and say, all right, I have the ball again. We're I am now creating offense again. You know, he's just I, I do think that is 
you know, a big question is, is how comfortable and how much you can tweak his play style. Um, if you were to get in a third star, I, I think that Kimball Walker would have been probably too much too soon. Um, just, just to use an example of a player, they were very, very close to signing. Um, so yeah, is, is there a name out there that I'm not thinking of? Like, I mean, the name, the name is, uh, Oladipo. He's probably the biggest mm. name that's going to be out there on next summer. Does he make sense though? Yeah. Even then, like Victor's a good defender, but he's a good off ball defender. Like he's a good help roving defender. What the Mavs need is someone who's really versatile, who can guard basically two, three, four, so they can move Luca around. So they can do what they need to do defensively. You know, you hope that KP can be the rim protector that you need and he'll be on the floor enough to be that. But to find a guy who's that, has that kind of defensive versatility, who also is good off the ball so that Luca can have it, but also can run a pick and roll if the ball swings his way, can do secondary action. That's that's a very small list of guys, and they all cost a lot of money, probably more mm-hmm. than the Mavs will be able to acquire. Is Richardson not enough of that type of player for you, Rob? I think he gets at it, and like that's why that addition is exciting. Is he gets at that, those ideas, but you you lose a little bit of the defensive range in terms of guarding the threes and four types that you might need to down the line. Like Richardson's a really good one and two defender, and then pick and roll wise. You know, I think we saw some of his warts in Philadelphia it's, as far as that goes. Like, looked really clean doing that kind of stuff in Miami. And then Philly, when things got jammed up a little bit, when, you know, when he kind of met a first level of resistance, wasn't as successful running pick and roll, doing stuff off the dribble for himself. So we'll see if the spacing in Dallas can eventually kind of open up that side of his game again. But I, I think he's a good answer for now. I don't know if he's the piece that unlocks the future contending Mavs, per se. Well, and yeah. when you say spacing, I think that gets back to the KP discussion, which I don't think we can really skip over that part of this. Let's go to number three. I'll start with number two. Tim, you're pretty plugged in in Dallas. What's the level of concern about KP's just health? I mean, that angel she was really scary because it came out of nowhere, it felt like, in the middle of that playoff series. All of a sudden, now oh, his knee is gone. He's out for the season. Yeah, the injury itself in a vacuum is not concerning. Um, he had another, and this one I I, I do believe, um, he expected the season to come back in January and actually delayed the surgery that he ended up undergoing, which uh, was a uh, meniscus repair, a very common known injury that usually just takes an offseason. Um, and so that that specific injury, and especially because they say it was a contact injury, suffered it, it's a it's an injury he played through you know he suffered it in game one he wasn't ruled out until game four so all of these circumstances everything lines up that that specific injury is not super concerning and you know had he had a, you know had he known when the season would return he would probably be back now he probably would have had the surgery sooner um obviously there's concern overall big picture you know for a for a player to continue to have knee injuries um even if they're relatively minor like the meniscus is is not a great thing for a 7-3 player you know he is the you know the most you know out of all the 7-3s in NBA history you know none have ever played like him in the modern era they don't have the same you know just movement like just players move more they they cover more space they cover more ground um there aren't a lot of examples of a of a you know of a fluid athlete like Porzingis is and and so there's not like there's not like a game you know a game plan moving forward to exactly how to you know prevent this necessarily. Certainly, a lot of doctors have a, a lot of ideas, and, and he's not totally dissimilar to to players in the past. But you know, just the the unicorn thing is is uh you know works both ways. I guess is what I'm saying. You know, there is you know the 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 fact that he is so unique and different uh, 
could also just mean that he is, you know, uniquely um, suited or um, prone to to just constant injuries. And, you know, that's what we've seen so far. Yeah, it's interesting because the Giannis thing almost washed away any sort of hope that there would be just an easy answer to this this question that's looming over them. Because on the one hand, like we're saying, there isn't just an obvious free agent in next year's market that makes a ton of sense. You just plug and play him and all of a sudden you're a title contender, best team in the West. And if KP isn't healthy, and at the very least, it seems like the health injuries are going to loom over him for probably the rest of his career. Like, do you have that big piece in order to go out and trade for that next guy? Like Bradley Beal, perhaps, is someone who is a close approximation to the guy we're talking about. Maybe he doesn't defend bigger guys, but can shoot secondary playmaker, gives you everything you probably want next to Luka for the most part. Um, but like, how do you trade for him unless you get rid of every first round pick in your cupboard and you get into the questions of like how much, uh, how many picks you can give up because of the Knicks picks. Yeah, they've already then, given up two for KP. Right. And then like, what is, what are you giving up? Like, who are you giving up? Are any of the young guys interesting to other teams? And I look at the roster and it's like, eh, maybe Josh Richardson, but he's on an expiring KP's like, he is the guy. And so, I don't know. It's, it's a complicated question. It seems like the situation, in some ways, it's cut and dry. Luke is amazing. They're going to be great. But to get to the next level is a little bit more complicated than I, I think you would like it to be at this stage. Yeah, to me, it's all about KP. Because I thought they played really well together last season. I was very impressed with how KP... Because KP in New York was very much like in Carmelo's shadow of like, I'm going to hold the ball, jack mid-range jumpers... But in Dallas, he really became this like 7-3-2 guard almost, where he was taking seven threes a game. And when he was on shooting, it was like automatic. And to me, if that's the player they got to have, and I just don't know how confident you can be in that. But if he's there, then they've really got something. Well, and that's why there's a version of this team where Luka takes these next steps we've been talking about, taking the offseason more seriously, upping his percentages, just even a marginal amount. KP delivers you know, up to the player we've seen and potentially even better a version of that team could be competing for titles pretty easily, you know, with an Otto Porter level addition more so than a Kawhi Leonard level addition. You know, like there's there's a range of opportunity here that Luka gives you just by being as good as he is. And you see the model basically in Milwaukee with Giannis and with some of these other teams that are more one superstar driven as well. Like you can do that. It's just a little more difficult, you know, depending on the matchups you hit along the way. I think that's the the hope. I actually wrote an article which was not well received in, in a in a fun way that <laughs> I, I didn't want Giannis. Oh, I remember like, that. That was yeah. ridiculous. That was a ridiculous article. <laughs> <laughs> I had fun with it. I had fun with it. But it's it's Giannis was the okay. This is you know, this is KD going to the to the Warriors. I, I guess like a just the slightest step below that. But I guess there in my mind there's no way that wouldn't work. There was there it it lost all intrigue in terms of. How would it work? You know, was there a chance of failure, um, et cetera, et cetera? Because those two are, you know, Luca and Giannis alone are perfect fits. And as long as KP is healthy, you know, he is, you know, the perfect third complement. Um, I know super teams, you know, sometimes struggle more than you expect, but then they end up winning anyway. Like, you know, sure, Miami took a while to come together, but they were in the finals four times after that. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I thought that Giannis... You know, as much as it would absolutely make sense from a basketball perspective, and of course the Dallas front office should want to sign him. Um, I, I didn't, you know, from a basketball fit perspective or basketball intrigue perspective, I didn't find it terribly interesting, you know, on the court. Off the court, it would have been fascinating. Um, so 
so yeah, I, I, and, and I guess the other reason is, you know, I, I think Luca and KP alone are good enough. Um, you probably still need one more player, but, but if you don't have a third star, quote unquote, you know, it's, it's a, it's a league of, of, uh, star duos right now. Uh, that's where everything has shifted. And I, I see that twosome if Porzingis can stay healthy, um, as being good enough, you know, maybe with one more piece around them. Uh, but the big question is injury. And, and I, I you know, the saying around the league is that, you know, your third star is insurance for one of them getting hurt. You know, that's, that's why you have trios. We saw it with Oklahoma City year after year after year after year after they win in 2012. And, and so, you know, especially with one of these two stars that might be good enough if he's healthy, you know, with all these injury concerns that he has, you know, that was the actual reason to go get a, you know, someone who is a proper third quote unquote star. So, so yeah, it's, it's a weird question. You know, you can, you can talk in circles all day about it. I feel like. Yeah. That's why we have three Dallas representatives on this podcast, not just two right now. We're talking um, triangles today. Who's getting injured? <laughs> Oh, it's definitely Trunks. I mean, did you not hear the, the horse discussion? <laughs> that horse just straight kicks them off. <laughs> All right. Uh, Tim, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, happy to uh, be one point of, uh, of a wonderful <laughs> triangle. Nice. There you go. Um, all right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about some other contending teams. This episode is brought to you by Arby's. It's 3 p.m. and dinner is still hours to come. Maybe lunch didn't quite hit the spot. That's where the new two-for-five-dollar chicken wraps from Arby's come in. Available in ranch, barbecue, and honey mustard. They're perfect for the afternoon snack attack or as an add-on to your meal. Arby's two-for-five-dollar chicken wraps are here for a limited time at participating locations. Visit an Arby's near you or order ahead on the Arby's app. This episode is supported by State Farm. Man, I remember when I first got into a car accident, it was pure frustration because I did not have State Farm. And now that I do have State Farm, it is an exclamation of pure joy. But the only words that you need to remember are, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm has options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Learn more at statefarm.com. All right, we're back in a much more intimate setting between just the the, the non-Dallas big three here. Um, we're going to talk about some other contending teams. Basically, do we believe in some expected contenders based on the early results? We're going to talk Sixers, Clippers, Nets, and Bucks. But first, I want to talk about the unexpected contender just briefly because they deserve our attention. The New York Knicks are 4-3. and three, And I keep waiting to have a, a full-blown discussion about them on this podcast because I, I just assume things are going to crater, especially uh, as Julius Randle flirts with more and more triple doubles. You just assume that this is going to run out eventually. But here they are, and the internet is a buzz about them. Um, we won't talk about it too much, but do you guys have any thoughts about the, the renaissance that is happening in New York? My first thought is one of the top 10 defenses in the league right now is manned by Julius Randle, Reggie Bullock, <laughs> Alfred Payton, and yes, Mitchell Robinson doing all the great and sometimes infuriating things that Mitchell Robinson does. And RJ Barrett, who is you know, a young player who really hasn't figured out how to defend yet. I have no idea how this is happening. Like put the Julius Randle stuff in its own box off to the side of just incomprehensibility 
of the, just the lines he's been putting up. But how is this team as good defensively as it is? Tibbs, baby. It's all Tibbs <laughs> magic. That, that's the only answer. Sharks, what do you think? Are you believing in the Knicks? I will say this. Julius Randle's been waiting a long time to have a team <laughs> built around him. No one's had the courage to do it until Tom Thibodeau said, I'm going to play Julius 38 minutes a game, give him career high in shots, points, assists. He's got the ball. It's a Julius Randle show. I guess there's a new franchise player in New York. We'll see how it, how it turns out for them. I mean, I'll also yeah. say this. In, in these dark times, there's something legitimately heartwarming about the look on Tom Thibodeau's face whenever he's asked about Emmanuel quickly in a press <laughs> conference. Like, yes, it is. It's great. It really is a beautiful thing. Uh, I mean, yeah, this feels like the, the typical Tibbs experience. Uh, so as I look at the box score here, Julius Randle played 43 minutes last night. RJ Barrett, the young, precocious sophomore NBA player, played 44 minutes last night, and they played eight guys total. Although one of them was the rookie, Emmanuel Quickly. So perhaps there is some light there. There is uh, hope on the horizon, but I don't know. If they're still blowing teams out by this time next week, we'll... We'll talk about it then. Um, On to a team that nobody ever talks about, the Philadelphia 76ers. So I, I've been watching a lot of the Sixers lately. Uh, they're 6-1 and one now after last night's win over the Hornets. And they look great. Like, the defensive numbers are off the charts. Daryl Morey is tweeting at the bloggers who are talking about those defensive numbers. He's talking about Reese's peanut butter cups. He's like, he is just living it up. Wait, who is he um, tweeting at? I don't, who is, yeah, who's he, who's he shot now? So, so Bodner was tweeting about their defensive numbers last night and Morey's <laughs> like, wait, well, did you see, did you see their, their net rating when it's uh, the big three? No, he called them the Holy Trinity of Ben Joe and, and Tobias Harris. Holy Trinity. Holy wow. Trinity. I mean, honestly, pretty accurate considering Tobias Harris has elevated to a higher plane all of a sudden. <laughs> he has. Um, and I mean, Embiid is like just passing out of double teams and it just looks beautiful. Like the spacing is is real, whether it's the shooting or, or, the, or the Embiid double teams. But I look at this team and I can't help but think, man, wouldn't this team just be infinitely better with James Harden instead of Ben Simmons. Like, this is a nice start. I think most of it is real. I think the Sixers are going to be a good team. They definitely look more organized. But like, instead of Ben using all that beautiful lush space in order to just dribble into the paint and then make just like this twisting jump pass or just to miss a point-blank layup because he doesn't want to get fouled or uh, people are just waiting for him to in order to draw a charge. Like, wouldn't it be better if Harden was, you know, just jacking up a, a three-pointer or passing to an, a wide-open guy for, for a three-pointer? I don't know. You just got done talking about their off-the-charts defensive numbers, and your solution to that is trading away their second-best defender for James Harden, as if as if that's just going to hold up. Like, like Ben Simmons, the st- I mean, obviously, that's always going to be a work in progress. But right now, the Sixers are top five in transition frequency, and they're top five in post-up frequency. Like, they are, they are juggling that as well as you're going to juggle it in terms of serving what both of those guys do well. And I think a lot of that, a lot of that comes down to the guys they brought in. It's Seth Curry, it's Danny Green, it's, you know, even Tyrese Maxey coming off the bench and giving them good minutes. Like, they're finding the rotation guys they need to play Simmons and Embiid effectively together. I, I think they're walking that line pretty well, well enough where I would think long and hard about a hardened trade. I mean, obviously, that's a difficult conversation to start with, but Ben Simmons is really good, and I'm not sure I'm ready to punt on that just yet. I think before we get too carried away, 
I'm going to read you their schedule, and you tell me who the best team they've played is. Wizards, Knicks, Cavs, Raptors, Magic. Well, you said you said Knicks, right? Can we just stop? So is, is it is it the Knicks? <laughs> I mean, it might actually be the Knicks. Like, if we're being serious, right? Of yeah. that seven team, that I mean, they're not exactly really pushing themselves right now against the league competition. So let's let's see what it looks like before we get too carried away. Yeah, this is the kind of the, the flip side of these baseball theories that I kept hearing all about. Like, people were excited about because hey, maybe rivalries will like spring up here. Seems like most of the time, A, the stars don't play in both games. And B, it's just like you could just load up on wins early if you just happen to have like the Hornets back to back or the Wizards back to back. Uh, and you're like the results are almost tougher to really parse through right now because so many teams are playing bad teams back to back to back, if that makes sense. There's definitely some of that happening, but there's also like I like the adjustment that's happening in some of those series too. You know, new starters into the lineup for that second game, like get, get different strategies, you know, a little more zone in, in the follow-up. Like there is a little bit of that going on that makes it kind of nice. That can swing, you know, Milwaukee setting a record for hitting threes in a game against the Heat in one game to the Heat edging out a win in game two. Like I I really do kind of like that dynamic. I, I think it's something that would be great for the regular season long term. And certainly the travel benefits are are great for what they are. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so back to the Sixers here. I think Rob brings up a very good point. I think the trade-off with Harden is obviously on the defensive end. But then I guess the question is, in the playoffs, which is all that matters for this team, are we ultimately going to crash headfirst, perhaps Ben Simmons style, into the same issues that they've had in the past if they don't fix this one offensive quirk to them? Because I could just see teams just like slinking back and then all of a sudden... Embiid maybe wants his post touches, but he's getting swarmed. And all of a sudden, this becomes a powder keg yet again. Well, it seems like the change, I don't know if it's like a conscious change, but Ben is shooting less and Tobias is shooting more efficiently. I just wonder, can that hold up over the season? I don't know. Like Tobias is shooting lights out right now. If I mean, he was not shooting in the playoffs last year, 47% from three. I do wonder if like maybe that's some of the, that's the Doc Rivers effect maybe because he had his best year for of his career in LA with Doc Rivers. So maybe that was like the hidden benefit of the Doc signing was improving Harris a little bit. If Harris can play this well, I, I just after the last two playoffs, I really can't believe he will against elite competition at this point. Remember we were talking about this a couple of weeks ago, even in the playoffs, and I was saying like, why does everyone keep thinking that Tobias Harris is just like sunk costs? Like there was a time where we were talking about his contract as if he was on par with Al Horford. And while I get that Harris probably will never live up to the amount he makes, like he's actually a useful player who could be like a significant contributor. And like maybe this is just a hot streak. He, I think he was Eastern Conference Player of the Week for yeah. the week that just happened. On the other hand, like maybe this is just a product of having space and not being crowded constantly when like, you know, his main value is going to be to stretch the floor and just be like a big body on defense. I don't know. It's just I think people jumped way too far on that conversation. I'm glad that at the very least there are indications that it's balanced out a little bit. Well, there's there's no doubt that as a collective media body, we are very bad at extricating players from their contracts. Like and, and no. not talking about no. <laughs> But I mean this what's going on with Tobias is to me, that's the case for real Sixers optimism. If if Tobias Harris can be that not only that effective shooting, but that decisive, and then you are also getting all these other con- contributions from across the board that goes back to what you mentioned off the top, Justin, which is, you know, Joel Embiid passing well out of the post a little bit more effectively, a little more cleanly. When you're getting 
Ben Simmons shifting around defensively so that Tobias doesn't have to guard the problematic matchup. So Seth Curry doesn't have to guard point guards if you don't want him to on a given night. There's just a lot to like in the balance of this team right now. And and they're missing a couple of bench guys, too, in terms of uh, Mike Scott and Furkan Korkmaz, too, who not world beaters exactly, but will round out your rotation when you get back, give you, you know, another couple options off the bench. This looks like a really good team to me. And, and it, it starts, it pretty kind of starts and ends with the defense. But if you can just get Joel bowling people over, you know, smaller bigs, basically anyone you put in front of him, Ben doing his thing, Tobias hitting lots of threes. This is a great recipe so far. I think that's a good point about balance, especially if you look at Ben, Tobias, Seth. And like I personally would do the Ben for Harden trade, but I do kind of seem like this roster is built more for Ben Simmons. Because like Rob was saying, if you're going to play Seth Curry, James Harden, Tobias Harris, you're going to need two Joel Embiid's to cover for those guys in a big-time playoff series. That's not a lot of defense. Well, what if P.J. Tucker comes along with him? Probably not the ideal guy in order for what they would need if if you make that trade. But like, I don't know. I think they could paper together. I just feel like what they're benefiting from only, especially on, on offense specifically, um, only becomes better with more space and with what Harden would provide. Like, wouldn't Joel Embiid be more of a monster down low when he just has one guy in order to be, and, and he doesn't have to be passing out of these double teams? It's just a one-on-one situation. Is, wouldn't Harris be better if he's just, like, wide open catch-and-shoot opportunities? I mean, Danny Green, like, how long can we count on him and Seth Curry to just, like, shoot at the clip that they are? And, like, you would want to provide them with more open shots? I don't know. I, maybe it comes down to the fact that I'm just, like, overrating what Joe could do as just like a, a stopper to clean up for Harden on the other end. But I don't know, man. It's hard not to look at this team and be like, eh, they could be a lot better than even what they have been thus far. I think in terms of the Harden piece of this, James Harden's an unbelievable player. But there's a redundancy with him and MB just in terms of possession usage that would be a problem too. You know, you tra- you're kind of trading one problem for another. And the fact that James Harden is an unbelievable isolation and pick and roll player, Joel Embiid, not actually that good of a, of a role man. You know, like he wants the ball on the block. He maybe duck in, maybe get some spot ups for threes and do his thing out there. But they're not a natural fit. They're both unbelievable talents, but then you're kind of tr- you're trading two very talented players in a difficult situation for two other very talented players in a slightly different situation. I don't know that I'm running into that. That is the funny thing about this whole conversation, because if you look at it, isn't Ben Simmons the better fit with James Harden than Joel Embiid, right? Because then you have the defensive. Ben Simmons is the defensive small ball five. He's more of the Draymond Green to James Harden than Embiid. And I wonder with Simmons, do you think this is more who he is in terms of taking fewer shots? Because the more I watch him, the more I think maybe he's never going to be a big time scorer. Maybe he's just a better distributor. He doesn't really score at the rim that well for a guy... Because you kind of think in your head, oh, he's just Giannis. He can't shoot, but he gets to the rim. But he doesn't have great touch around the basket. He's just not really a big-time scorer like that. Like Maybe that makes more sense for his game anyways. He's LaMelo Ball with an Equinox subscription. <laughs> I don't understand Equinox. any piece of that comparison. <laughs> Where else you get Equinox Do your from? thing, Barrier. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I guess. I mean, well, so that's that's one question. Perhaps like the one thing that they haven't really explored here in the early going as they like work through what Daryl Morey has suggested is like this trial period where he wants to see all these guys work together is they really haven't changed the offense much. And like, yeah, Joel Embiid doesn't run a lot of pick and rolls. Maybe he isn't ultimately like as effective in that role, but like they could try more. And I do wonder 
as they get more and more into the season, maybe as they have more practice time, we get to see that with this current group. And who's to say that isn't their ultimate, like Embiid's ultimate like trajectory where like he will be in these plays more like prominently going forward. And then all of a sudden, maybe Harden is better in that role too. But who's the pick and roll guard though to run more pick and rolls with Joel Embiid on this roster? Yeah, probably Seth. Yeah, Seth. But then, yeah, maybe Simmons isn't optimized in that situation. But if you had James Harden, <laughs> is he optimized in that situation? <laughs> I don't know. Things are going well, but I could see signs on the horizon where I, maybe this all is just like the schedule, as we're saying. Um, so wait, that's that gets back to our bigger question. Do we believe in the early results? I would say I, I believe in them being better but I don't believe that in them being best in the East better as currently constructed. That's fair. Can you pick them make the finals though, Justin? Before the season? The Sixers? Yeah, but now I have actual results in front of me. I'm, I'm so a man you, of, So of then data. you don't believe. So then, because compared to where your belief was before, now you have less belief after what you I change my beliefs all the time. That's, <laughs> ah, that's what I do here. Build your house on Luke, a rock, Justin. The key is for people not to to know what you're doing, like to not stand out so much that you could change depending on where the wind <laughs> blows. <laughs> but you're right. No, I, I I think like I think that they can be very good. I think that, but I think there is a way for them to be even better. This episode is brought to you by Visible Wireless. Want a wireless provider that always brings its A game? Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon as low as $25 a month every month, taxes and fees included. And as if that wasn't already a huge win, you could use promo code RINGER20 to receive $20 off your first month just for listening to us talk about basketball. Not bad, right? You don't need more than one line of wireless to save. Just switch to Visible at Visible.com and use promo code RINGER20. For data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. The Visible monthly rate is $25 per month. All right, let's move on to the Clippers. Sharks, you wrote about them the other day, but they're 5-2, and two, and... Things seem to be going well under the Tai Lu regime here. Have you guys ever seen the Wes Anderson American Express commercial from a few years ago? And he's just like making decisions on the fly. And someone like asks him what gun he would like. And he's like, can we have this one with a with a bayonet? I feel like that is Tai Lu going through this Clipper season thus far, where he's just like making all of these easy decisions uh, quickly. And they're all paying off here. Uh, Charks, you wrote about this. I'm basically just cribbing from your article. So uh, <laughs> they're they're diminishing like the roles of Lou Williams and Pat Bev, and Paul George seems to be benefiting as a result of that. First of all, who's the bayonet in this metaphor? Uh, Zubach. Okay, <laughs> naturally. <laughs> yeah. So um, in the article, I think yeah, it's kind of two main things. I think one. They made some really smart kind of under-the-radar acquisitions. So they brought in Serge Ibaka. He's been great as a stretch five. And then Nick Batum's hit that Boris Diaw thing where after three or four years in Charlotte, he remembered he can play basketball still. He's on a contender. And you're like, wait, Nick Batum's guarding three positions. He's like running point forward. He's knocking down threes. Like, this guy can do a lot of things. Like, this is kind of incredible. That's one end of it. And the other is what you're talking about where it's like, it's pretty clear. Look at their numbers. Ty Lu said, all right, all you guys who didn't like Paul and 
PG and Kawhi, like, I don't care about you. Like, this is how it's going to be. <laughs> I mean, to move Lou Williams from number two in touches to number six, that's a really bold, like, statement of intent. Like, here's what we're about now. If you don't like it, you can join Montrez and the Lakers. I don't care. Like, this is the new <laughs> way we're doing things. And it seems to have worked. Like, this is how we're going to do it. They're a new lineup with George. So they go Beverly, George, Kawhi, Batum, Serge. They've been the smoking people. And that, to me, seems fairly sustainable. Er, I mean, earlier when we were making this podcast in a previous week, I was shamed for trying to pick Serge Ibaka as one of the most interesting <laughs> players in the NBA this season. I'd like to give this opportunity to the two of you to apologize for that. That was Justin, wasn't it? That's mostly Justin. <laughs> I, don't, I don't mean to lump you into this, John. It's mostly Justin's fault. Yeah, I, listen, I think it, it is all working now. Serge Ibaka seems like a lovely man who who seems like a... Uh, a, a profound contribution to this Clippers team. My question is, how long is that lineup going, that Sharks mentioned going to be available? Because if you followed Nick Batum over the past, his entire career, uh, which I, would, I wouldn't be mad if you didn't take note of him in Charlotte over the past couple of years, like he's going to be injured. He played 23 games last year and it's just, it's going to come eventually. And I think the one thing that worries me is if we're saying this hinges on Nick Batum like that seems a little bit more shaky ground than you'd like it to be. Well, that's where you would hope that by scaling back guys like Lou Williams, that when the time comes and they're needed on a given night, you can scale them back up for more minutes, for more touches, for more opportunities. You hope that that's going to be there when you need it. The tricky part is that Luke Kennard, you know, the $64 million man is off to a kind of unremarkable start there too. And you would hope he would be in that stable as well of guys you can call on when those opportunities come. I, I don't know how reliable either of those guys are going to be. I mean, Lou Will has said all the right things so far in terms of his role. He's He's been a good sport about it, but that's a tough situation to go from the level of involvement he, he had before to, you know, shooting eight times a game. Like, you know, it's just not, it's not really his, his style. I wouldn't say like, I think also Marcus Morris, right? He's kind of the guy who hasn't played for them yet. He gives you another six, eight versatile forward, guard multiple positions, spread the floor a little bit. And I think that will kind of balance out. And to Rob's point, I would not be stunned if Lou Will is not here at the deadline. That would not surprise me at all if he ends up... I think once you pay Luke Kennard all that money, it kind of made Lou Will just like, well, what's he doing? Also, you're paying Luke Kennard like double Lou Will's salary. That's just tough to begin with. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, the Morris question is an interesting one because he's the wild card in this scenario. Uh, he hasn't played yet. And I do wonder, like, if Nick Batum just, like, takes over that role, where does Morris fit in? Are you bringing him in off the bench? Is he going to be okay with that? Um, I guess you could play bigger lineups where you're not playing Bev as much and you just have, like, a bunch of rangy uh, death lineup style guys out there. But I almost feel like Batum and Morris are just, like, the extremes of, like, a similar type of player. And I almost feel like Batum's calm, easygoing, I will plug in and do whatever you guys need me to to do on this team style is exactly what they need. Whereas Morris jacking up shots, doing weird things in playoffs, stepping on people, etc. is what they don't need. And I wonder if he throws off the calibration as soon as he gets back in there. And what do you do if he does? I'm not too worried about it just in the sense that they do have those pieces that they can move around. And you know, ultimately, when, when playoff time comes, a lot of these problems will resolve itself. You're just not going to play whether Lou's still on the team or Luke Kennard or Reggie Jackson, Marcus Morris, if it comes to that. Like the core guys are going to play a lot. 
and you're really relying, no matter how you shake it out, Paul George and Kawhi Leonard have to be healthy in the end. They have to be really, really good. And you're going to lean pretty heavily on Ibaka, on Zubats, like on a lot of these supplementary guys that aren't quite in this, uh, this question mark space that we've been kind of hovering around. Because you know, as we've seen, if, if Kawhi is out for a game, this is a team that can lose by 50 points. Like they have that kind of potential in them as well. So it's, it's almost a moot point to me, the Marcus Morrises of the world. They're going to be you know, helpful in some games, not helpful in others. But I'm, I'm not too concerned about that piece of the rotation, I don't think. To me, I like what Justin said, I'm looking at it like, if I could close a game with Paul George, Nick Batum, Kawhi, Marcus Morris, Serge Ibaka, I can put PG on the point guard. I can have five, six, eight guys who can all shoot threes and all defend multiple positions. I've got a lot of playmaking. That is an absolutely disgusting lineup that I would be scared to go up against. That is not a joke at all. We, we should give a moment to Paul George, too, who is in kind of an unstoppable zone in, in that Kawhi space of, I don't even know what you're supposed to do when he's shooting like this, just because of his range and the way he moves and the way he's been able to shoot. That's a, that's a tough cover for anybody if he's going to be playing like this. And I talked about this in my article yesterday. And just one thing I remember from the Mav series was that there were all these times where he's struggling to shoot. It's like, well, then just put him in a pick and roll with Luka. Like, don't make this mm-hmm. too complicated. You can just space the floor and get him to attack a weak defender. And that's what like, Ty Lue was doing a lot. So they played the Suns, I guess it was Sunday night. And it was like, oh, we'll put Paul George on pick and roll against Dario Saric or against Langston Galloway. And I think that is where you make his life easier. Because sometimes with Paul George, he can make the most ridiculous shots, right? Come around a screen, catch at 30 feet, like Clay Thompson shots. But if he's not making them, he can also make easier shots. So let's make his life easier. And that's what's happened this season. Mm-hmm. Paul George playing like an all-star. Imagine that. Um, all right, let's move on to the Brooklyn Nets. Uh, they are now three and four after what was just a barnstorming uh, start to this KD Kyrie era. Uh, things are getting a little dicey here because people keep dropping like flies. Spencer Dinwiddie is out for the season. Uh, doesn't seem like he's going to come back anytime soon. Even before, so KD has now has to sit out seven days, which I think equates to four games because of uh, just contact tracing and uh, quarantine and all that stuff. Uh, and even before that, he and Kyrie were sitting out games. You'd expect that to continue, especially as we mentioned with back-to-backs being a thing in the NBA now. How are we feeling about this team now? Because I think all of the concerns that I think people were worried about coming into the season are starting to show their head. Not only what I just mentioned with uh, just like absences, but also defense, turnovers, rebounding. Are we saying that this team has enough talent on hand to overcome that? Is this early starts? Rob, where are you on the Nets? I would say of this group of teams we're talking about here with the Sixers and the Clippers, and we're going to get into the Bucks a little bit too. The Nets are the team that I'm worried about the most. And that's saying something considering those other three teams flamed out in pretty spectacular fashion in the playoffs. So I I think the Nets, I don't want to step on it too much because I want to write about this a little bit, but their minutes without KD and Kyrie on the floor and some of that, as you mentioned, Justin, is manufactured by them sitting those guys for certain games. You're kind of putting a lot of those reserves in tough situations, but they're getting crushed. And, And, you know, Steve Nash, Steve Nash has tried to play those guys together as much as possible. The Nets to this point have played a third of their minutes with neither guy on the floor and have just gotten obliterated during that time. That has to change. This is a team that, you know, as we've talked about on this podcast, has a lot of depth 
But I don't know if that's depth that coalesces in a way that can carry units, that can carry quarters, that can build runs. There's just, there's a little something missing. And some of it may come from the fact that you're kind of starting DeAndre Jordan for whatever reason when Jared Allen's your actual starter, which makes your bench look a little bit better than it is. And now you're throwing TLC into the starting lineup who might be able to fill out that group. But again, your your starting five isn't as roundly solid as you might have liked it to be with Dinwiddie in there. So I worry about the Nets a little bit. You know, and it's not just the defense; it's just about their ability to sustain forty eight minutes of good play, depending on how they want to manage the rotations with Katie and Kyrie. But isn't that an obvious fix at some point if they're getting killed in those non Katie Kyrie minutes to just stagger them? Right. That's like a simple, maybe not simple, but that's a tweak you could make pretty easily. It helps for sure, but it depends on those two guys and what they want. Like, that's yeah. the thing is their chemistry together is great. They want to play together and they came there to play together. And whether they have the pull to basically say, like, look, we want to be on the floor together as much as possible or not, an interesting political capital situation in, in Brooklyn already developing. But that, make, that makes to me that I almost feel like it's better they're struggling, right? Because you know what they don't want to do to start out like five and 10? And get, I mean, the amount of negative publicity for two guys who read and watch a lot of TV, that's going to wear on them a lot. And there's a lot of stuff they're doing. It's like, like you're saying, it's just not ideal. Like starring DeAndre Jordan. We were talking about Dwight Powell in the last segment. I kind of feel like DeAndre is a bigger Dwight Powell now where he doesn't really <laughs> run to the rim anymore. He's, he's a little older. So what does he do out there? He's not shooting, obviously. He's not very skilled. He doesn't move much. He gives those high fives with the back of his hand. He does do those. Those are cool. <laughs> but so to me, they're like, if they're going to be playing badly, they've got to stop running bits, right? Like Katie and Kyrie running a lot of bits right now. But we got to play our friend at center. We got to play together. And the bits work if you're winning games. But if you're not winning games, it's a pretty easy fix. Like we got to stop running bits. Yeah, I mean, I guess the big question with them is, is all of this fixable? Like you're saying, is is this an inevitable tweak to what they're doing where they just realize that DJ just can't be out there for these significant minutes, that they have to go with Jared Allen? Does Kyrie and, and Katie finally get frustrated enough with losing? Do they go on a three-game skid and all of a sudden it's like, all right, fuck it, we got we to gotta go back to what works. And DJ, I'm sorry, but like, we'll like, go on an island vacation with you after the season. Like that seems inevitable here. I think my big question with them is to Rob's point about like just the minutes without Katie and Kyrie, they're kind of all designed in order to empower Karis LeVert into being this super six man, this Mono Ginobili type. And if he's not going to be that, then what is he on this team? Because I think the the Dinwiddie injury opens that space in the starting lineup. And I don't think it's in the best interest for the, for the Nets for him to be that guy that fills in there. I kind of like this role that Nash has carved out for him. But if he can't play that, what is he? And does it become more of a situation because he's a guy who just signed an extension, wants to be a big, like a bigger deal than he actually is? And is this going to become more messy as the season goes along? I mean, we've talked about him on this pod in terms of having some great singular performances. Like he has those games in him, but you look over the course of the season so far and he's shooting 37%. Like, that's not going to cut it if you're in that role. If you're carrying a second unit, especially to the degree that they need him to, and if they're going to selectively choose to rest KD and Kyrie for games, you got to be better than that. And, and that's where the you start kicking up the dust on, whether it's a James Harden conversation, whether it's trading him for somebody else. Like, you, you don't want to ship out Karis LeVert too soon and jump to any conclusions there. But when we're talking about the depth of this team and how it could be reimagined, you, the trade piece of it has to come up. It does seem like to me watching him, it feels like he's he's been forcing it a lot. 
Mm-hmm. Where it's almost like yeah. now that he's not starting, he's like, I gotta prove myself. I gotta get all my shots up. Doesn't it just he seems always like he has to I don't know, but he's just not going in now, I guess is the difference. Yeah. I mean, he's always been kind of a forcing it player to me, but yeah. it, sometimes in a good way. Yeah. That's, this is why I think they're gonna feel the Dinwiddie loss, maybe more than people assume. I think people see like, oh, he was, you know, the third guy on that starting lineup. He was like their fourth point guard in a in a like a pretty crowded backcourt. Um they just don't have that buffer zone there where I feel like if Dinwiddie was there to maybe play more minutes with Karras, like maybe there would have been uh, a little bit more of just a margin for error. Or when Kyrie wants to sit, hey, then we have Dinwiddie to go out there and and to carry some of the load. I mean, this is a guy who pretty much like was the star of their team for large stretches last season. I do like it long. I do long term. I think they probably would have been better off putting more of a three and D guy in his spot in the starting lineup, like even when they were rolling, I felt like that was probably going to be the n- inevitable conclusion of like how they stagger things. But like, I don't know if TLC is that guy. And like, I look at up and down the roster, they have all these options and like, I don't know who it is. Like Prince just seems like he just never is, is getting it. Um, Bruce Brown, like maybe he ultimately becomes the guy. Landry Shamit just like doesn't know how to shoot anymore and I do wonder if like even as bad as Luke Kennard is like maybe the the Clippers pulled the wool over the Nets eyes with that one um I don't know maybe it made a small sample but there are a lot of little things that are starting to add up here I think this is where you see we're gonna need Steve Nash to earn whatever it is that he makes this is a coach's job is to find these kind of answers is to go through your bench make these adjustments then kind of react quickly to those adjustments and figure out what's working and what's not to move around in pieces of irritation. That's where it's going to be important, right? Whether it's Shamit or TLC, whoever it is on the bench, you need your coach to find that answer. And I think with Dinwiddie, now that I think about it, I wish we talk about Dinwiddie with the Mavs because he'll be a free agent mm. in the summer. That actually kind of makes sense to me as him and maybe in Dallas, but that's a different conversation. Well, I think that distinction, though, as far as the coaching is important, though, Charks, which is this is not to me a doom and gloom kind of situation. This is it's time to go to work. Like now we have to really do the work of going through a regular season and figure this shit out. Yeah. Before transitioning to uh, another coach who is known for figuring the shit out. um, Do you believe in the Nets? I'm going to say yes. I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think ultimately they get there. But again, we, we have some problems to solve. They're just too talented. Yeah. You know, like I, I, I just look up and down the East and I just see, I see Kyrie and KD on paper. And I'm just like, man, it's just, if they're firing in all cylinders, I don't, I don't see how another team like really puts up much of a fight there. Um, but I guess this would be the team to do it. Milwaukee Bucks. Uh, so I don't know what to do with the Bucks these days, because on the one hand, they're just like getting blown out by the Knicks and then they're just setting a record for threes made. And all of a sudden you look at the net rating leaderboard and they're right there at the top again. And it's the good old Bucks. Um, but the big question with this team is the ultimate one, which is just like what, what this new construction looks like in the playoffs. And so I kind of find myself in a shrug situation where I don't believe in them simply because of what happened before. But I'm not sure because like the more and more they have these good results, I'm like, God damn, if they could just like not run into a wall in the playoffs, this would be an incredible team. Sharks, where are you on the box right now? I mean, I I think Drew's been amazing. I've loved to see the Drew Middleton and Giannis have been like everything you expect. But then you just watch some of their bench lineups. I was watching the game this morning from last night, the Pistons game. And there was one point where they were playing DJ Augustine, 
Bryn Forbes, and DiVincenzo. And I guess he's at the three at six foot two. And it was just like very deeply depressing. I was like, this is not an NBA lineup you're running out here right now. And like, I'm watching Thanasis play actual minutes. And I'm like, what is he even doing out there? Like, what? It, that part is very concerning to me, just the bench. It's really bad. There's been a lot more Thanasis Antetokounmpo than I was expecting to watch this season. <laughs> and, and not just like throwing him out there for garbage time, as John yeah, he's was saying. Play in the rotation. Oh, hey, go oh. guard Goran Dragic full court for this this second quarter or whatever. It's Bud is really leaning on him. I mean, <laughs> I don't know whether that says more about him or more about DJ Wilson, but it's saying a lot about somebody. <laughs> Do we think that was part of the extension agreement that Giannis signed? <laughs> like, if we start to see Alex. And Ted Kumpo on this team in a couple of years, whenever he comes out of college, like I think we'll know something is up. Well, rather than the salary share that the Morris twins were on, there's like a minutes share for Giannis and Thanasis. So if you don't want to play, you know, if it's a blowout, Thanasis got to get in there. You, we got to hit a minutes total here. Giannis is like, well, if I calculate my value to this franchise, maybe you could max out Thanasis, and then those two salaries combined really are my value. <laughs> the Morris twins joint contract the more and more we go on here is the wildest thing that's happened in the NBA in recent years. Like, and that the Suns just turned around and just immediately, one, immediately. <laughs> just like, that is like dirty. That, like that in the Carlos Boozer, like opting out just to sign with another team thing is like that. Those are the two of the worst things like I've seen in the NBA uh, contract wise. There's probably been much worse things. I guess we're just going to have to wait on the bucks here. I, I mean, maybe the question is like, do they have a move in them? Are we sold on Dante DiVincenzo's future with this team? Or is he just like a piece that potentially they can spin into something else at the deadline? What do you, where are you guys on, on, on Spicy D? I would want a little more time. And some of it, to your point, Justin, about needing to wait and see. They just haven't played in that many close games yet. You know, we haven't really seen their, what their crunch time lineups are going to look like. And it's, it's been games that aren't close on both sides. Like they've, they've had some bad losses too. But w- when they have had tough situations... It's been, you know, the three guys you would expect. It looks like Brooke Lopez is going to have to be out there just because of the way the rotation is laid out now, unless the matchup is completely atrocious for him. And then it's one of Dante DiVincenzo or Pat Connaughton. Like, that's what you're rolling with right now. And if you're satisfied with that for for contention, then that's kind of what it's going to be. Dante is by far the more promising option there. And I think he's had a, a decent start to the season in terms of fitting in, looking a little, just a little calmer than he did in the bubble. But you're again as we've as we've come around to a lot in talking about the Bucks, a lot is leaning on Dante DiVincenzo this season. I'd say I'm worried less about him as your fifth best player, as Connaughton, Augustin, Bobby Portis as six, seven, eight. Because you got to have like at least a seven man rotation, right, in a playoff series. So I'm right now. I'm just going through the rosters. I'm looking for who's going to get bought out. Like, I feel like they just have to get a buyout guy. <laughs> I don't know who that's going to be, but they have to. We're like two weeks into the season. We're already looking at buyout guys for this team. That's not a good place to be in. The other thing to be fair about the Bucks, like we, we can talk about their playoff struggles and the teams they've run up against. And certainly they've put themselves in a category where that's the conversation is how, how does this team get to the finals? How does this team win the championship? But you watch some of these games and you're really reminded out at how hard it is to build the wall against Giannis. You know, the book is out. Like everyone knows what to do. But then, you know, the Pistons roll out there, the poor Detroit Pistons, and Giannis is just dropping 43 on them because they can't get back in transition and set up the right way. And some of that, you know, some of that is kind of regular season teams versus playoff teams. But I think we overestimate the non-Miami Heat, the non-like super elite defense contingent of the East 
and their ability to match up with Giannis, especially if the Raptors aren't going to be the Raptors this season. You know, like how many teams are there in the East who are really going to be able to get back and transition and wall up the Bucks the way that they're going to need to? I guess the Sixers are in that conversation too. Yeah, I wonder if the answer is for Bud to just play these guys more. Like, maybe we're overestimating just how stringent he's going to be that approach after just failing so dramatically two years in a row with it. Like, maybe the bench doesn't become an issue because you're playing Giannis, Middleton, and Drew 40 minutes in every playoff game. And all of a sudden, like, Bobby Portis just, like, isn't playing and you're playing Giannis is, like, you're staggering the minutes so Giannis is the center with some of those second unit teams. I don't know. You're I kind of buy for, this approach, Justin. You're saying, like, the Bucks are, like, working against their own coach. Like, we are actively going to prevent you from playing more than, like, six players. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, they jerry-rigged the, uh, the lineup in order... They bud-proofed the lineup in order to get these guys in more. Well, he just needs to find his inner Tom Thibodeau, apparently. And Giannis needs to find his inner Julius Randle, and everything will be fine. <laughs> they did get blown up by the Knicks the other day, so maybe we're onto something here. Thank you for joining us. Thank you to Tim for uh, dropping some Dallas knowledge, especially about the... Uh, the metro area and their usage of horses. Uh, We will be back next week on Tuesday yet again, our new time, our new place. Until then, we will see you then. 